18th. Okay, so now we're going to get into uh, our new series we started last week. And we started a series last week um, in Luke chapter 9. We're starting in Luke 9 because that's the section of, of the book of Luke where it says that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to move this out of the way. Is this going to explode if I unplug something? All right, I'm not going to pop this mic. There we go. It's like in the way, and I just don't like when things are in the way. Um, so we started in Luke chapter 9 last week where it says Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. And we covered the parable of the Good Samaritan. And I told you how I once failed the Good Samaritan test. Remember that story from last week? I told you how I was working at a church a long time ago. And I was driving somewhere to a church meeting. And this lady was on the side of the road with a flat tire with a small child. And I didn't help her. I refused to help her. And I kept driving. And the high school pastor did the exact same thing I did. And then we get to the meeting and he and I are on time, and then the junior high pastor comes in kind of late, looking sort of dirty and disheveled, and he's like, sorry I'm late, but I helped this lady on the side of the road with a tire, and so me and my friend were feeling pretty low that day that we did not pass the Good Samaritan test. So that happened like years ago, and I told you that story last week. And then after I finished preaching last Sunday, and you guys left the building, I walked out in the parking lot, and the parking lot was mostly empty. And there was this lady over in the parking lot right over there. And she had a flat tire. And she had like four children with her, okay? And I saw her across the parking lot, and I was like, this is my moment of redemption. And so I went to her, and I saw, it looks as though you are in need. And so... I rose to the occasion, and I redeemed myself, and I looked at the sky, and I was like, I will not fail you again. This really happened last week, okay? I, a person had a flat tire, and I was able to help them. I've been on the staff at this church for like 18 years. That's not happened one time in the parking lot at TBC. And so the one day I tell you that story last week, and then God's like, well, here you go. You get to redeem yourself, all right? So that happened last week, which, was, which made last week really just interesting and fun. So um, that happened last week. And so for today's story, we're going to look at this section in, in Luke, the next chapter, where um, Luke enters into a town called Bethany. This is about two miles east of Jerusalem. And this is where Mary, Martha, who are sisters, they have a brother named Lazarus. And you may have heard about him. He's the guy that died. Jesus raised him up from the dead, brought him back to, li back to life. And so here's a picture of where Bethany's located. It's about two miles east of Jerusalem. And I've got another slide here that shows, like, part of modern-day Bethany. And uh, you can't see much of it there, of course, but that's just a modern-day uh, look at the, the, the town of Bethany. And then um, the next picture is a picture of what they think may have been Lazarus's tomb. And, uh, and uh, I think that's a tourist, not Lazarus coming out of the tomb there. So... Um, but we didn't actually get to see that tomb uh, on our trip, but there was a place that they think this may have been the tomb that, um, that he was in at that time, and then Christ resurrected him from, the, from that tomb. And uh, so we're going to look at, at, this all took place in that town of Bethany, and so we're going to look at Luke chapter 10. Go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. Luke 10, starting in verse 38, where it says, Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, 
who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve all alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. So as Jesus enters into this town called Bethany, it was common for people to welcome other people into their home and show hospitality. They didn't have all kinds of hotels and inns back then, so they would welcome them into their home and show hospitality to them, show that, give them food and whatnot and lodging. And this house belongs to Martha and Mary. And, of course, Lazarus is their brother. So there's, there's some connection here with Jesus. And then right away, though, I want you to see something because I want you to see how Jesus valued women throughout his ministry when he was doing ministry for three years or so. Because in that day, a woman learning from a Jewish rabbi would not have been allowed but Jesus welcomed them to him, and he celebrated them in his ministry all throughout the Gospels. They're the first ones that go to the tomb. They're the first ones that get to witness the resurrected Christ. And so we see Jesus continually valuing women and kind of correcting what I think is a wrong back in that culture um, as he did that throughout the Gospels. And then we also see in the story here that these two sisters are like the opposite personality types, right? Right? So for those that have siblings, uh, many of you are opposite of your sibling, and you're already laughing about the differences that you have with your sibling. So one of you is messy, the other is organized. One of you is an extrovert, the other is an introvert. One of you loves to read and be in your room all alone on a rainy Saturday, right? And the other person is like, let's go to the movies, let's get, be with people, let's get out of the house. Um, the other hates reading, you love movies. Um, it's really funny how God puts those different opposites in the same family, right? Like, I'm, if you have several siblings, you know you're just opposite in all kinds of different areas. And I know you're thinking that when you get married, you're going to be like, well, when I get married, I'm going to pick someone who's just the opposite gender of me, obviously, but the same kind of personality. That's not going to happen. Opposites attract. It's a rule of the world, the universe, right? And, uh, and so... God does the same thing in marriage where opposites are brought together somehow, and you will find that you're very opposite of your future husband or wife when you get married one day. And so Mary and Martha, though, they're like opposite sisters. So Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus. She's like, you know, the artist. Like she's being present in the moment. She's just soaking up all the teaching that Jesus is giving to her and everyone else in the room there. She's enjoying the moment. And Martha is the more task-oriented person, and she's, like, running around like crazy and making sure there's the, you know, every cup has a coaster under it, and she's making sure that, um, that everyone's being fed and everyone has the, the drink that they need uh, in their home. And so she is making sure that everything's being done kind of behind the scenes. That's Martha's personality. And so Martha gets angry at her sister Mary, and she, she says to Jesus, she says, can you tell my sister to help me? Which sounds a lot like the way you talked about your siblings, I'm sure. And, uh, and you appeal to your parents, right, when your sibling's not pulling their weight. And this is what Martha does. She goes to Jesus and says, can you tell Mary to help me in the task of feeding all of you as you come into my house? And then look at what, how Jesus responds. Instead of him Siding with her, he rebukes her. 
And he kind of puts Martha in her place. And he says, you're so busy trying to give me a food portion, you're missing out on the portion that I want to give to you. You might say it like this. Some are so busy serving Jesus, they miss out on listening to Jesus. Now listen, there is a time to serve and a time to get your hands dirty. There's a time for that, of course. But sometimes we serve him best by sitting at his feet and listening to him. And Martha's doing a good thing, but, um, but Mary's doing the better thing in this instance. So the Good Samaritan story, we discussed it last week, reminds us to serve other people, but that doesn't mean that we ignore God in the process. Our core values here at TBC are surrender, community, and mission. And sometimes our personality might lean towards one of those over the others. Like some of you are just real, you know, reflective, and, and so you understand surrender, and you love to go and sit and, and worship and, and be alone with Jesus, and you love the idea of surrender to him. And then others are more community-minded. You love to be with people. You love to be with the body of Christ. You love to go do things with them and, and fun activities, and you love to be in deep, deep Bible studies, which is great. And then some of you are like really missional, which is great as well. And you're like, I want to go find a place to serve. Forget all these, like, church people that are my age, you know. I want to go serve somewhere and just be serving, get my hands dirty, and, and serve the kingdom in some way. And those are all wonderful things. But at times our personality can lean towards one of those core values over the other ones. But we need all three. And in this moment, what Jesus is emphasizing is just being at his feet and listening to him and what he has to say. And Martha is kind of ignoring that right now. And, and, and she's not sitting at the feet of Jesus. So one of the dangers of a youth ministry is that we offer all these really tangible ways for you to serve and to get involved, which is good. But the question is, do we spend time with God in prayer? Do we ever reflect and embrace solitude or meditation on the scriptures, or learning from his word. Because if we don't do that, our service is going to be empty. So if you're the missional-minded person, if you just want to go do mission stuff, whether it's locally or globally, and that's all you think about, that's great. But if it's not informed by your own personal walk with Jesus, and you're sitting at his feet, so to speak, and learning from him and listening to him, then all that's going to be empty. It's not going to stand up. It's not going to last the long haul. So how do we know if we're serving in the right spirit? Well, the question is, does it lead to self-righteousness or judging other people in the way that Martha does here? You know, I'm really convicted by this little story because so often I spend my week preparing a spiritual meal for you without allowing Jesus to feed me. It's a constant struggle that I have. I'm just going to go get my books and study and read and and yeah, yeah, I'll pray about the passage, or I'll pray about what I'm teaching about. But at times, I can struggle to be ministered to by Jesus or fed by Jesus before I come and try to feed you. And it's a struggle I've always had with um, my, my Christian faith and even this job that I'm in. So if you're going to feed others spiritually, you need to be fed spiritually. So it's feeding before leading. Feed before you lead. And otherwise, you're going to lead from a place of total emptiness. And this is why at Impact Camp, 
when we go there every summer, we start the day with you doing what? You spending time in prayer and also in God's Word. And we tell you that it's the most important part of the day. It's more important than the training you're going to get. It's more important than the fun activities. It's more important than anything you'll get at Impact Camp. It's that time where you get alone because I know that most of us, we don't ever do it. And so we carve out that time for you on, on those four days in a row so that you'll spend time with him and recognize, like, hey, I can do this. I can do this when I get home where I live. And so it's the most important part of the day, really any day, not just when you're at impact camp. Now, it's amazing that after Jesus has this encounter with Mary and Martha, watch what happens next. Look at Luke chapter 11, verse 1, where it says, Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. So I don't want you to miss this. What was Jesus just doing in the first verse of of chapter 11? Jesus was what? He was praying in a certain place. And one of his disciples witnesses that, observes that, and says to him, he says, Lord, teach us to pray like that. Or in the way that John taught his disciples. So right after Jesus commends Mary for sitting at his feet and spending time with him, where does Jesus go? Well, he goes to sit at the feet of the Father. And now he's spending time with his Father. And his disciples say, well, well teach us to pray like that. The, the way that you pray to your own Father, teach us to pray how you pray. Teach us to pray how John taught his disciples to pray. Because the disciples have to know how to be fed spiritually before stepping out and leading. And as you know, many of them were killed for their faith. I mean, Chase talked about this this morning. And as we start the book of 1 Peter in our church, Churchwide Study, Peter has a crazy story of transformation. And he would end up giving his life for the gospel and for the kingdom. And so Jesus knows if they're going to do ministry and, and, and lead people to Christ and shepherd people and disciple people, they're going to have to be filled up and be fed by him for the, before they step into the next phase of their life. I know that we often feel inadequate in our prayer lives, and the disciples are no different. So they're coming to him and saying, teach us how to pray like this. So one of the most important ways to be fed spiritually is going to be through prayer. So look at Luke chapter 11, verse 2, where it says, And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. Now, at times we call this the the Lord's Prayer. And there are some longer versions than this available in other, other Gospels. But it really should be called the Disciples' Prayer because he's teaching the disciples how to pray. Now, listen, this is not supposed to be a prayer. We often think of the Lord's Prayer as something that's recited at formal events, formal gatherings, and and we memorize it, we say it out loud, we say it in a big crowd of people, and there's a place for that, but the issue is it's not just meant to be like that. It's meant to be considered like an outline, or here's some things, some categories in which you can think of as you think about prayer and how we can pray to God. So, Um, That's going to be how we break it down uh, this morning. So um, when it comes to prayer, though, I think we struggle 
to pray, but prayer is just communication with God. Like, let's not overcomplicate prayer. It's simply communication with God. And we are born, when you think about when a baby is born, they come out of the womb like trying to communicate. And they're trying to communicate things to their needs. And so they cry and they wail. And that means they're hungry. And as they learn a few words down the road, a few weeks or months later, they start saying things. And there's, we, come, we come into this world trying to communicate with one another. Then as we learn those words, right, and then uh, as you grow up in elementary school, I was always the kid who talked way too much in class, right? And um, we've got to keep kids quiet, right, in class. And we, we try to say, listen, don't communicate so much. Like, keep the communication down when you first enter elementary school. And then, of course, when you get to the teenage years, what is every student's greatest thing that they desire. It is a phone, right? Because through the phone, through that device, you can now communicate with all of your friends. And so we have this like innate desire, this inborn desire to communicate and, and to connect with each other. And we've got to be told like not to do it sometimes, right? I heard a student say one time, this is a long time ago, she said, when my parents take away my phone, it's like death. And she was serious. It was like, you just, you just killed me. And it can feel like that when you're, when you're cut off from contact with other people. It can feel like a form of death or dying, right? But what's weird about that is we don't feel that way about God. Like God created us to communicate with each other but also with him. And yet, we have to, like, drum up the desire to talk with God and to communicate with God. I struggle with it as well. So why is it that we have to kind of learn to rein it in when it comes to each other, but when it comes to God, we've got to drum it up, and, and it, it almost feels like work sometimes. And so the disciples, they feel this inadequacy as well. Like, we don't know how to pray. Like, how can we pray? How, teach us how to pray. So the disciples are right where you are and right, right where I'm at. And they say, teach us how to pray. And so Jesus lays out for them just this little simple outline on here's how you pray. And again, this is to be think, thought of in, in, in categories. So the first statement is, hallowed be your name, which is praise. This means to praise God for who he is in his perfect character. Listen, prayer is always about God's glory. You might ask why we have to pray when, when God knows our needs better than we know our own needs. But we do that, we pray to him, we praise him, and we ask him to glorify himself with our lives. It's also, this also means that we would pray that faith in God would, would spread throughout the whole world. How often do you and I pray that others would come to know him. And so we, we praise, we praise him, but we also pray that others will come to praise him and surrender to him. So that's hallowed be your name. Then we have your kingdom come. This relates to will. We pray for God's will to be done. Over in Matthew, it says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is asking God to be king over every part of our lives. 
So our emotions, our desires, our thoughts, our actions. We pray for his will to be accomplished in our lives. And then he, he says, give us each day our daily bread. So this is needs. What are your needs? What are your daily needs? So in that day, um, they were very aware of their daily needs. You know, food couldn't be preserved for very long back then. So we think of today, our refrigerators are stocked, our pantries are often stocked, and it can make us forget how truly dependent we should be on God. Because back then, they truly had to be like praying about the daily bread. You know, sometimes we only pray in times of great need, but Jesus wants us to always see ourselves as desperate and dependent upon him. I heard someone say once, why you pray will always determine how you pray. Why you pray will always determine how you pray. So if you always see yourself in this place of of desperate dependence, you're not going to struggle to pray. So let that physical image of of daily desperation be a picture of us spiritually, how much we need him, how much we should be depending upon him. The next statement is, forgive us our sins, which is confession. So we think about our relationship with God, but also relationship with other people, and we can examine ourselves, and we ask for God to show us ways that we've sinned against him and other people possibly. Now you might ask, why does a believer need to ask forgiveness when we're already saved and already forgiven. Well, that's true, but this, this prayer here is a reminder that we need his mercy daily. Just like we need his daily bread, we need his daily mercy. And it's a reminder to confess our sins to him. I've heard some Christians say things like, you don't ever have to pray this prayer or confess because that's now like almost making your prayer like a work to gain salvation again, I don't see it that way. I don't think you can lose your salvation once you're saved, once you're truly a believer. But you confess to him not to, like, regain salvation because you can't do that, but it's a simple acknowledgement of the wrong you've committed, and so it's aligning your heart with his heart. And so that's what it's about, I think, when it comes to confession. And then lastly, Lead us not into temptation. This is now protection. Now, it might, it might seem like a strange request. Like, why am I praying to God, God, please don't lead me into temptation? Like, does God ever lead us into temptation? No, the book of James says that God doesn't tempt us to sin. So what is that? It's a funny wording, but what it means is you're praying for protection in the times that you might be tempted. And so it's, you're saying to God, God, protect me whenever I'm in a time of temptation. And I will tell you that if you're in a a moment of temptation, whatever it might be, if you pray to God in that moment, I'm not saying the struggle just goes away entirely, but you have the Holy Spirit that is indwelling you if you're a Christian, and the Holy Spirit gives you power to say no to sin. And you'd be surprised if if you pray and you cry out to him in a moment of temptation, Um, how he will show up in times like this and protect you and give you a way out of the temptation, whatever it might be. So this prayer isn't to be, you know, again, just mindlessly recited at formal gatherings or whatnot, but I think it gives us help to know what to pray for. So Jesus knows that our struggle with with prayer is not just going to be about the mechanics of prayer, what to pray for, but the motivation to pray. 
I think the biggest struggle we have with prayer is not just like the steps or knowing how to do it, but it's the motive. It's the motivation to pray. Like, why should I pray? What's the point? Does it really change anything? Does it really have any impact? And so in verses uh, 5 through 8, Jesus gives this kind of a funny analogy. And he says, what if a friend came to your house at midnight and he said, and this friend comes to your house, knocks on your door at midnight, and they say, can I, bro- can I borrow three loaves of bread? Now, that'd be a strange question today, of course. You'd be like, go to H-E-B and buy it yourself. They're open like 24-7. But back then, that wasn't the case. They'd make their daily bread, and if you had a, if you had a guest come and stay with you at your house, and they just show up, they're expecting hospitality from you. So if you don't have any bread to give them, you may run to your neighbor's house at midnight and say, can I borrow three loaves of bread? I have some friends staying with me. They just showed up. And can you please give me some leftover bread that you might have so I can give it to my guests at my house? And this is a story that Jesus tells. And Jesus, you know, Jesus says, you know, you would never tell that friend, if they're knocking on your door at that hour of the night, you would never tell your friend, you know, go away, I'm sleeping. I mean, you're not really because you're yelling at the person, right? But you would get up and give them what they need. Even if your friend's a little bit annoyed by the request, they're still going to meet the need. Why? Because you've been bold and persistent in coming to them. So if your slightly annoyed human friend responds in this way, then how much more will your gracious, gracious Heavenly Father respond when you ask when you're in a time of need? So skip down to Luke chapter 11, verses 9 through 10, where it says, And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. So Jesus says, be persistent and be bold when you pray. Just like the person in the story, be bold, be persistent when you pray, and you come to God with these needs. Now this does not mean that you always receive what you ask for because God knows what our true needs are. Our problem, again, isn't just the mechanics but the motivation to pray. And so look at verses 11 through 13 where it says, What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So Jesus compares the Heavenly Father with an earthly father, and he says, what if a son asks for a fish, but instead the father gives him a poisonous snake? That's just not going to happen. Or what if he asks for eggs for breakfast, but instead the father gives him a deadly scorpion, giving new meaning to Captain Crunch, right? And a loving father would never give their kids such a thing for breakfast, right? You wouldn't do that. So he says, if, if you then, who are evil, no, he doesn't mean like serial killer evil. He means like just fallen, broken, sinful, like everybody else. He says, if you then, who are evil, wouldn't do that for your kids, then how much more will God the Father give you the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? 
Notice what he says God's going to give you. It's the Holy Spirit. So we have to know what to pray for and how to pray in the correct way. And so he says, you should ask for power from the Holy Spirit. I can't really think back on a time recently where I've prayed for that. I've prayed for lots of things. I've prayed for changed circumstances. I've prayed for all kinds of things. But when did I last pray for the Holy Spirit or power from the Holy Spirit? But he's saying, if you ask for that, God's going to give that to you. He's going to give you power from the Holy Spirit. So this whole story is about us having the boldness to approach God in prayer. And sometimes we are like Martha. We get so caught up in, in serving and in action that we fail to just sit at his feet and to learn from him. Or at times we think, we think of his greatness and, and he can just seem so unapproachable, so far away from us, so distant. But listen, how we view God, and it says here, address him like a father. How we view God is directly tied to our motivation to pray. So we, do we see him as just this far-off, distant deity, or do we see him as a gracious, loving father? I love the words of Phillips Brooks, Brooks here. He says, prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance. It is laying hold of his highest willingness. Persistence in prayer is not an attempt to change God's mind, but to get ourselves to the place where, where he can trust us with the answer.